This podcast number 803 with lead scientist Stan Cox is brought to you by Robert Hall, author of a new book entitled This Land of Strangers, The Relationship Crisis That Imperils Home, Work, Politics, and Faith. Please listen to podcast number 804 where Robert and Greg had a great conversation about different kinds of relationships. Focusing on four key domains, home, work, politics, and faith, Robert presents a wide-ranging research that proves that relationships are the greatest source of gain and pain. I'm sure you will enjoy this interesting interview. If you want to know more about Robert Hall, please visit his website at www.roberthall.com. That's R-O-B-E-R. T-H-A-L-L dot com Now for a featured podcast, please listen to Greg and Stan as they talk about Stan's new book entitled The Green New Deal and Beyond Ending the Climate Energy While We Still Can Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voisin, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Stan, as I do every time I come on these shows, I have to thank these listeners because we're now at almost 14 years, a uh, quarter million listeners. The list just keeps growing. Mm. Uh, and, and I thank them because they like the variety of the topics. They like what I put out uh, and the genres that we put out. And today from Salina, Kansas, we are going to be speaking with Stan Cox regarding his book, The Green New Deal and Beyond. And this book was recommended. Many of my listeners know Michael Johnson. So Michael Johnson has worked um, in helping the Land Institute get its name out there. And Stan is with the Land Institute. And we are going to let our listeners know, Stan, just a bit about you. He's the author of many books, including Losing Our Cool, Uncomfortable Truths About Our Air-Conditioned World, uh, and I think maybe during the heat that you're having in Salina, Kansas, maybe <laughs> got to have those fans blowing in the background. Any way you slice it, the past, the present, and the future of rationing and how the world breaks, life in catastrophic in, in, ca- in the catastrophic path from the Caribbean to Siberia. Stan has a PhD in plant genetics from Iowa State University during his first career at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and now at Land Institute. He has authored more than 90 peer-reviewed scientific papers. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and many more publications. So Stan is not new to writing. He's not new as an author, and he certainly has done lots of research. And again, for my listeners, we will have a link on the blog to Stan's book, The Green New Deal. Please go out and get this if you at all have any interest on what's going on in our environment and what we need to do to curb, um, let's say, greenhouse gases. So Stan, I think a great place for us to start is really if to give the listeners an idea of what the green new deal is and how uh, would this affect our environment positively if it was enacted we live in a very strange administrative uh, situation here with 
the current people in our government, um, which all of our listeners know. Um, I don't know what the chances are between now and November of getting anything passed, but you have to be thinking long-term here. This has got to be a long-term deal. That's right. So tell our listeners a little more. Well, the Green New Deal um, goes back, uh, in, in, in its U.S. version, uh, goes back to two years ago um, during the uh, 2018 campaign season. Um, and it still is um, not really a, a plan yet. It's a, it's a vision. There, has, there, there are groups working on, on writing it up. Um, but it, and and its, its roots go back um, uh, 12 years now to, uh, to the uh, UK, where um, they had begun talking about a, a Green New Deal to uh, get out of the um, Great Recession. Um, to create jobs uh, in um, building up renewable energy as a economic stimulus, um, and that's still a lot of what uh, the Green New Deal vision. Which all we have to go on really is a joint congressional resolution from from last year that was submitted in the House and Senate, but uh, has never been voted on. Um, but what we might call the uh, New Deal part of the Green New Deal, it has some very good aspects, like millions of uh, jobs in building up green infrastructure, economic safety nets, healthcare guarantees, economic and racial justice. And all, all of those things are even more timely now, of course, as you're dealing with uh, pandemic, economic collapse, and the persistence of racial injustice. It's the green part of the Green New Deal that is uh, lacking because it, it, um, it focuses on an industrial buildup of um, renewable energy, green infrastructure, but it lacks any mechanism to get fossil fuels out of the economy. And, and fossil fuels are so um, dug in in this economy, they, they permeate it, that only uh, a statutory cap on the um, quantities of oil, gas, and coal coming out of the ground and into the economy is going to um, get fossil fuels out. Um, so, in this cap has to be has to lower, ratchet down year by year, within and get to zero within the next. Uh, uh, 15, maybe 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, there's and, and there's nothing in the Green New Deal that um, is going to do that. So that's the reason I wrote a book called Green New Deal and Beyond. That, that's the beyond part. The Green New Deal is fine, but, but we need um, the, this additional action. Yeah, and I have a question for you that you know we've seen in California here the. Uh, changes in legislation for electric cars and, you know, but if these electric cars, and, and I think it was purported by a recent documentary, I saw that 67% of our energy still, meaning electric energy is coming from fossil fuel. Um, I don't know if that number is right, but I mean, and I, I, I think electric cars is the way to go, but obviously if we have electric cars and electric cars are using 
fossil fuels from plants that are burning to to actually plug them in. Where are we? I mean, I, I know that maybe sounds like a crazy question, but, you know, I guess unless there's solar panels on top of the cars or people are using solar in their homes to actually uh, uh, charge their cars, are we defeating the purpose? Right. You know, right now, um, driving electric cars it, it is not an emission-free way to drive. Now, now the, um, the Green New Dealers vision is that we're going to rapidly build up enough renewable energy capacity that we can not only supply all of our current electricity needs, but that we can also um, junk all 250 million of our internal combustion engine uh, vehicles and replace them with um, electric vehicles and have build up enough renewable energy to power them too. And, and that is really going to make it a lot harder to um, replace, um, to produce enough renewable energy for, for all of that, because that's going to be a huge new uh, burden on, on the uh, electric grid. And how, then, how much of our how much of our energy stand is coming from uh, hydroelectric, uh, solar, um, wind energy? Uh, when you look at electricity in general, I was watching a documentary on Iceland, and in the seventies, Iceland was really dependent on uh, fossil fuel, and from the seventies to today, they are not dependent at all. And I was just really, uh, I, I don't know, just surprised at the fact that their lack of dependence on fossil fuels and everything there seems to be very green. Uh, the hot course they ha- they sit on a geothermal uh, ideal condition to be able to get, you know, that energy from um, the volcanoes that, that are around there. And I should say the, the formation of the earth that's there. So where, where are we as a nation, meaning the U S uh, in relation to the percentages being generated from non-polluting re- uh, sources like that? Well, we're not as fortunate as Iceland is having uh, a very small, I think, 300,000 population. Yes, yeah. yeah. exactly. Uh, sitting on a, a loads of uh, volcanic uh, geothermal um, energy. Um but we're um, there. The past decade has seen the fastest increase in solar and wind energy, but it's still a very small part of the uh, total energy supply in the in the single digits. Um, and we, you know, we've always had hydroelectric, and there's very little room to expand that further um, without causing a lot of uh, ecological uh, damage. Yeah. Um, so it's really going to have to be um, solar and uh, wind power that are, are going to um, have to increase. But even that fast increase in the amount of um, solar and wind that we've seen, it's big on a, a percentage basis each year, but it's starting from such a low base. Uh, but e- even that has 
more or less added to the total energy supply. It hasn't displaced um, fossil fuels. It mm -hmm. has been a recent reduction in the amount of coal-fired electricity, but that has been compensated primarily by uh, increase in natural gas. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so we're, we're remaining very highly dependent on fossil fuels, and that's what, what we've got to do something about. Well, you mentioned that our temperature today is 1.2 degrees Celsius higher than it was in pre-fossil fuel era. What are the effects going to be to our planet if we don't reverse these trends in the CO2 emissions and get this under control? Because, you know, I personally, I know that, that continuing on the way we're continuing is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, it's going to have an effect to our crops. It's going to have an effect to water supply. It's going to have an effect to everything that we're dependent on. So what where, what does it look like if we continued where we're continuing? Well, in uh, October of 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the you know, thousands of scientists, it's the world's expert uh, body on this, uh, they um, really sent a, some shockwaves through the climate movement. And, and I think this... This spurred a lot of the enthusiasm for the uh, Green New Deal also. When, when they issued a, a report that was simply titled 1.5 degrees of warming. So as you said, Greg, we're, uh, right now the earth is 1.2 degrees warmer uh, on average than it was at the beginning of the fossil fuel era. And so they're, uh, they're saying, that we were running out of room fast that we should not ex get above 1.5 degrees of warming. And then they went through a whole lot of projections of what would happen um, if, we, um, uh, if we went, say, up to two degrees of, uh, of warming. And, and then things really get ugly. It would... Uh, we'd risk the irreversible loss of the massive Greenland and uh, West Antarctica ice sheets. Some of the, um, uh, you know, they're unbelievably large and would raise the entire, the sea level of the ent entire world by maybe uh, six feet or more. Wow. That's would, pretty extensive. I mean, flooding in Florida and California would definitely happen. <laughs> New yeah, York. You yeah, know, it would be goodbye Miami for sure. Then. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and uh, one fourth to one half of the Arctic crust would disappear, which would be particularly catastrophic because that would irreversibly release a new surge of carbon in, into the atmosphere as those that uh, permafrost is a huge reservoir of carbon. And, and if it went into the atmosphere, it would accelerate the warming. Um, storms, wildfires, pest outbreaks would cause far more spread of forest dieback at two degrees of Warming. Well, we're already seeing much of this in even in the state I live in, the fires that we've been having, oh. incessive. And, and you know, um, 
the the reality is is that this is a a part of that uh, global warming effect. Um, we're seeing aquifers yeah. underneath the Central Valley uh, now talking about the people that are growing um, almonds. Uh, using up all that water. So we see a sinking valley as well. So we're seeing lots of, um, what do we say, potentially catastrophic issues. And throughout this book, you provide an extensive history about how we arrived at where we are today. And in particular, you cite a book, Limits to Growth. And I went on Amazon and I looked that up. That original publication was in 72 from some MIT scientists. Um, and those scientists wrote this book, and then it was revised again uh, in 2004. So they, they did an updated version. I don't know if it was the same scientists, but I pres- I'm hoping that it was. So they revealed a world where we strip our resources. Speak about their predictions and why that book is really so relevant and so important to the story. But um, this was uh, a group that they started this work in, in 68. It was in the very early days of computer modeling. But um, yeah, MIT had uh, pretty good models even back uh, for those days. So they, they wanted to project the trajectory of humanity for the next 130 years, that is all the way up to the end of our current century. And so they, um, based on various assumptions about um, resource uh, availability and um, how much economic activity we engage in, how much um, uh, uh, pollution we create and so forth, what um, how long could economic growth go on? Um, and, and so they were talking about a very long uh, time frame. But they, um, as they ran these models, they they got um, economic uh, growth curves that went uh, went up just as they have gone up since then. And then, but if, if, whatever their assumptions, eventually. Sometime before 2100, there was a very rapid uh, decline. And some, sometimes uh, it was because of pollution, in, including global warming. Sometimes it was uh, resources running out. Sometimes it was uh, that food production declined. And, um, but uh, in, any one of these was what would, um, they said, um, bring about uh, permanent de- de- economic decline, um, but finally they they said, okay, what if we alter the the uh, the parameters of of this model and we assume um, universal access to uh, uh, birth um, birth control uh, limits on industrial production, dramatically increasing efficiency and durability of of goods and and so forth and, and basically trying to live within uh, ecological boundaries and they found then then it you had kind of a modest um, kind of steady state economy no you know nobody's getting rich but um, it, it could survive for the long term 
uh, and then around 2004, uh, some, uh, um, and they, re-released that, but there were also others who um, looked at their models because they had been criticized for decades. They said, hey, what happened? The resources haven't run out. We're still having growth. Um, you, know, you were way off on this. But when when you looked at their curves up to 2004, their original projection said, yeah, we're still, we would still be on the upslope in 2004. Um, and and we were following that the kind of business as usual um, model. Um, the bad news is that those curves um, began to descend rapidly uh, in 2030. So, um, you're, so even today in 2020, we're still riding that wave. But um, there, there are a lot of signs that uh, you know it. it it may not last much longer, and so we. That's why we have to immediately. With those, with those forecasts, Stan, do you have any uh, belief that technological advancements that you know we're on the forefront of so many different things happening? The evolution of you know just you look at the electric car. I heard Fisker yeah. out this morning. Now talk, they're back in the business again. You know and. Tesla's stocks at all time high, and we're just talking about one industry. But then you look at all these other industries, robotics, and all this, where you're going to be able to do things much more efficiently. Uh, the question would be: Did they try and uh, put into their forecasts and those models all the technological advancements that could occur that could disrupt the potential effects that they were talking about on the decline of resources? Well, that was interesting. They um, they did do that, um, and and so they assumed, uh, yeah. Well, they you know took uh, different assumptions um, that there would be uh, breakthroughs, um, you know, unprecedented technological achievements that would okay. get us past uh, whatever the the limit was, say food production, whatever. But right. what they said was that every time we um, our, our technological achievement got us past uh, one uh, hurdle to growth, we, the the economy would okay resume growth up to a point and then meet another um, another obstacle. I see. So, okay. Uh, it, it's kind of like a whack a mole problem that yeah can't yeah. solve everything uh, simultaneously. Yeah. So in the in chapter two of your book entitled "What the Hell Happened," you reference uh, Margaret Solomon and Ariza Silk, the co-founders of the climate mobilization movement, as thinking their whole world has been shattered, uh, and that's a statement I made. Um, what was it that you believe has shattered the plans for change, and what are our hopes for continuing our movement in spite of what has happened? Because Obviously, in 2016, we had the election of Donald Trump. Uh, everybody who knows anything knows what's happening with relation to his position. Um, I have friends that worked at the EPA who no longer work there. Um, I have uh, people that are telling me the EPA has literally kind of just been on hold, uh, that n nothing's really getting done. We've seen two new people there, administrators. I think it's been two. Who knows? It might even be three. 
before one guy gets going, then another guy comes back in again or whatever. Um, you know, what, what in your estimation politically is going on? And as they, you said in that chapter, what the hell happened? Yeah, that, um, that chapter two is about the uh, political events that, uh, uh, starting in the summer of 2016 that, um, led up to the um, development of the Green New Deal. And, and the context for um, Ezra and Margaret um, saying that is, uh, I had asked them, is the opening scene in this chapter two, uh, I asked them, um, what, what, when, do you remember, because I think a lot of us do, waking up on the morning of November 9th of 2016, the day after the election, uh, do you remember what the first thoughts were that went through your head? And then that's when they talked about this feeling of other, utter hopelessness. And part of it was the, the uh, 2016 leading up to that point had been, um, time of great optimism in the climate movement. They had, um, for example, gotten a very strong uh, climate plank into the Democratic Party platform, mainly um, uh, Sanders uh, delegates getting it in there, calling for a World War II size mobilization for, for dealing with climate and so forth. And there were, there were lots of plans for the first hundred days of the incoming Clinton administration, all these things are going to happen. And so that's why they said, you know, it appeared that everything had fallen apart. Um, but then uh, the the movement kind of found its legs again um, before too long. And um, even with the, uh, the interruption of, of the pandemic, there. um once again, not only the Green New Deal, but a lot of stuff is being planned uh, for next year. Because, as you said, uh, there's uh, obviously no nothing's going to happen legislatively um, this year. No, uh, no, not, not no. Uh, but if we do see a change in administration, we obviously will see uh, much more interest in uh, again who's going to control the House and who's going to control the Senate. Uh, but it, with a democratic president, I, I would think that we would see that. Now, you know, mention that you mentioned that getting fossil fuels out of our lives will not only be climate friendly, but will also end the environmental damage that has come with extracting and burning coal, crude oil, and gas. What advancements have been made in the percentage of electricity generated from that? I know you just mentioned to me that it's a small percentage; it's single digit. Uh, that surprised me because. I thought it was quite a bit more than that, to be honest with you. Um, I, th- I thought we were uh, up, upwards of way more than that. So that was a big reveal <laughs> to me. Um, but where do you see this going? Let's say we do see a change in administration. Uh, we do see everybody come forward with the Green New Deal. How long would this take uh, to see a precipitous decline in our dependence on fossil fuels? Well, you're, but you're right, Greg, in that if, if um, hydroelectric is counted, then it's a um, higher percentage, but <clears throat> not for just 
wind and solar, and that's where the increase is going to have to come from. But there's a the serious problem is the an assumption, not just in the Green New Deal, but very broadly in the climate movement, that um, building up um, um, wind and solar capacity will kind of automatically through the market will displace jewel for jewel, you might say, uh, the energy coming from fossil fuels that renewable will be because of being more desirable. And if it's going to be cheaper, then it'll um, chase fossil fuels out of the market. But um, history and research tell us that's not the case, that whenever new sources of energy come along, they tend to add to the total energy supply and not displace the previous ones. Um, you think back to the um, late 19th century when um, oil production really started getting going. Uh, coal uh, use continued to rise right right through that period and right in parallel with oil. And just we, we just had a much bigger energy supply. And then natural gas after World War II really started increasing. Oil continued increasing alongside it. Uh, and, and that's because um, a growing economy, more energy is, is always very welcome. And so that's why we have to have a, a direct mechanism to reduce and, and eventually eliminate the, uh, the uh, extraction and, and burning of fossil fuels. Let me ask you a little bit of an off-the-wall question. Um, you know, since this pandemic started in March, uh, we've seen a precipitous decline in air travel, use of cars, gasoline prices have plummeted, meaning the crude oil prices have plummeted. Um, we, we have talks from these industries that, People commuting to work is going to decrease precipitously, even if the pandemic ends or there's a vaccine. Uh, do you believe that this pandemic that we're currently right in the middle of has had any effect? Um, I mean, I know here in California, just from my observation, I see much bluer skies every day. Um, I see freeways that are that are not empty, but there's certainly much emptier than they were before. Um, so we don't see this con- burning of, of fossil fuels like we saw before. Uh, we saw a movement toward um, uh, more electric cars. What if this lasts this way? Let's say it does stay this way, which would be a contraction because it'd be hard for airline industries to only fly with half full uh, planes. But my question you be, would could this have an effect? It's funny. I I finished the final um, edits in, on, on this book a couple of months before the uh, pandemic came along, and uh, in, in the book I um, I uh, briefly talk about what what if you know, imagining scenarios, and one of them was what if we organized an, a global boycott of air travel, people just refusing to fly and and you know, air travel plummeted, and uh, little did I know that two months later, it, it, it 
95% of flying wasn't, it had just stopped happening and the world didn't end. We're, we're all, um, we're all still healthy. here. Yeah. We're now using Zoom, which is why Zoom stocks <laughs> gone through the ceiling. But, but right. <laughs> you know, the point is, is it's not as good as me sitting there interviewing you, but it's the second best thing. <laughs> well, I, and I think, um, and obviously this was a very uh, chaotic, undesirable way to eliminate uh, emissions. And but it shows that um, that we, a lot of our assumptions about what we have to have or have to do um, may not really be necessary. And I, and I think, in, in especially in the debate about which businesses have to be open and which which don't um, and the and the discussion of uh, which goods and services are essential and which are non-essential I hope that will kind of seed a further discussion of that once we get outside of the pandemic and we can um, decide uh, what what we can do without or do with mm-hmm. what less off and what and, and on the other hand what are uh, goods and services that uh, everybody needs a sufficient quantity of and to be sure that that is available everybody has access to that and that we and and to do that that we reduce the production of uh, what's not essential very good point and you know I think our listeners would like to know, you know, they they see that you wrote this book, The Green New Deal, right? Um, But I'd like for you to tell them a little bit about the work that you do at the Land Institute and why you believe that the Institute is, what they're doing is so important to transforming how our agricultural industry grows food perennially. Now, I know for me, um, I've recently learned that I'm gluten intolerant well you're the guy with wheat right so <laughs> in salina kansas there's they're growing plenty of wheat there but yet i hear these stories about places like in europe where they're still growing wheat but that if i ate the european wheat i know this sounds kind of silly i probably wouldn't be gluten intolerant then i heard in the 60s a guy got a nobel prize for actually crossbreeding wheat so that because we thought there was going to be a food shortage um and he goes out and he changes, I don't know what he did, he changed the seed, you're going to be able to tell us, <laughs> so that these farmers could grow a lot more of it, but that it became a, a much different strain of wheat. Without telling us the whole history, what is it you're doing there and, and why do you? Why is this so important right now to farmers everywhere uh, across the world? Well, what we're doing is attempting to develop a, a whole new kind of agriculture, which would go way beyond um, growing certain varieties of wheat or high corn hybrids rather than other ones that we, um, Wes Jackson, who founded the uh, Land Institute in the 1970s, um, I've been here since 2000, um, you know, said at the beginning that the uh, that we we're always trying to work on problems in agriculture when we really need to go after the problem of ag- agriculture, meaning 
the growing of annual crops that require that um, every year the soil uh, be disturbed, that the soil ecosystem be disrupted. We put new seeds in there, and then we do, at least these days, a lot of, and it go to a lot of industrial efforts to keep it weed-free, insect-free, etc. Um, rather than having plants like, well, you know, like, uh, uh, say, like orchards that um, are self-sustaining, they, they grow they grow every year. They're there for a long time, except they would be perennial plants that produce our staple um, uh, grains and, and beans and oil seeds, which together, those, those kind of foods are constitute uh, three-fourths of our land area and our diet. So um, we're working on developing um a perennial, a perennial version of wheat that would um, grow back from the from the ground uh, every year without planting new seeds. Um, we're working on perennial uh, sorghum. We have um, uh, we have a perennial uh, legume, you know, beans uh, program. We are working with. Um, so you're uh, telling me you already have those? Well, there do you have perennial wheat? <laughs> but in experimental strains of it, it's not ready for prime time yet. It's uh, not grown in uh, large uh, production. Right. Yet. It's still experimental. Now we do have a perennial relative of wheat, um, which produces a, a small grain that is it's like a miniature wheat kernel can be used for much of what wheat is used for that um is, is called kernza and it is in pilot production in some uh, commercial uh, production on, on a small scale uh and then uh perennial rice which are we worked with our colleagues in southwest china on it's now growing on thousands of uh, acres in, in several provinces in China, and it produces um, as good a yield as um, uh, annual rice in those places. Wow, it's, it's fascinating what you're doing and just uh, crazy. So to wrap up our interview, I think the listeners have gotten an idea of the Green New Deal. They understand that if we continue to grow at the current uh, mission rates that we have, that it's going to be an issue. Um, and, it, and how would you sum up for our listeners, how are they going to play an active role in the important issues as it relates to just the long-term survival of our species? You know, you talked about MIT, 2100, uh, the economic impacts it would have. What can we do? I mean, I know you wrote the book about air conditioning, you know, uh, losing losing our cool. Um, obviously, the use of, of these uh, instruments to cool us and the emissions that it puts out into the environment, obviously the amount of electricity that it uses, the consumption that it uses is tough. What would be your recommendations, just practical recommendations for the everyday person who has a huge interest in this uh, but would like to do something to curb uh, the issue? 
Well, I, uh, as I discuss in the book, there are many ways that um, we, we all are going to have to be active, both as individuals in, in uh, curbing our own consumption, but uh, and also collectively to uh, make the necessary change happen and make sure that it happens um, uh, very soon, because as the IPCC says, we, we've, we've run out of time. Uh, to steer our society to living within ecological boundaries. So our um, individual um, action and change in our lifestyle and so forth is obviously necessary, but we are not going to affect it um, solely through um, what, what we do individually. Um, and one thing that, that we have to do, which we've been um, alluding to er earlier uh, is to start demanding now that the candidates who are going to be on our ballots in November at all levels from local to national, that they're going to work for direct rapid elimination of fossil fuels once they get into office. Um, and then we all got to get out and, and vote in November in, or in, in the primaries before November as well because we really need the action at the um, at the higher uh, levels of government has got to start um, as soon as possible and and we we need to make sure that we have a president and two houses of Congress that can uh, can do that and we need to um, raise the um, the level uh, of alarm to make it make people really believe that there's a climate emergency. We, we need to create that sense of emergency. And I think maybe we can look at the recent uh, Black Lives Matter um, uh, actions that have been taking place this spring and summer as um, as an inspiration for um, not just having a a climate march, but to really um, you know, turn up the the heat. Um, if our my, listeners wanted to keep a pulse of the movement, besides reading your book, which I'm going to highly recommend here, that they get mm. uh, to go to City Lights, and we'll put a, a link uh, to that. But mm. if there was one website, you no, know, maybe it's the Climate Change Initiative or whatever. What website and what newsletter would you recommend that they uh, probably so they can get their finger on the pulse, find out what's going on politically, what's going, what they can do to get involved, who they can support? Uh, where is there one place where they can go that aggregates all that? The one place that I always recommend is the theclimatemobilization.org. Okay, and we we discussed. Its uh, founders right. um, earlier, um, but they not, they not only have um, do a lot of organizing. They were behind more than a, a thousand um, um, uh, either um, cities, counties, um, communities. More than a thousand have declared climate emergencies now, and are and, and a lot of them are. You know, taking steps uh, in, in response to that. But they also 
have um, the most comprehensive plan for what um, the government uh, needs to do. It's, it's they call it the Victory Plan because it's modeled on a, a plan that um, mobilized the economy during World War II. Um, but it, it is um, very comprehensive about addressing not only climate but uh, but uh, all of our uh, environmental and social uh, problems. So that's uh, theclimatemobilization.org. We will put a link to theclimatemobilization.org. And Stan Cox, a pleasure having you on. Again, for all my listeners, uh, go to Amazon. We'll have a link to Amazon to get this book. Uh, this is It gives you history. It tells you what's going on. It's an opportunity for you to learn. Um, and as uh, Stan just said, go to climatemobilization.org if you want to stay plugged in to what's going on, which you should, because this is a very important thing we should all care, care about. Stan, it's a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, speaking with my listeners worldwide, and hopefully all those listeners worldwide too, because this just is not an issue of the United States. This is an issue that's worldwide. Um, for all of you listening at all those places, click on Amazon as well and get the Kindle version or get the version of the book. Um, and thank you for all the work that you're doing at the Land Institute on perennial crops because I do know that this is an important issue. I'd love to see you know us be doing a lot more perennial farming. Um, hopefully, the big corporate farmers are going to pay attention to, to what you're doing and maybe do something with it. Uh, Cause you know, that's a huge industry, but I'm not certain their eyes and ears are always looking toward the future. It's usually how much profit is in it now. I hate to be a doomsayer, but they're that that's kind of the way they work, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, but, but uh, special greetings to you, uh, Salina, Kansas, a great book an opportunity for people to learn. Thanks, Stan. Thank you so much, Greg.